Hello, welcome to Careers Talk. I'm Kerry Eustace. In this week's podcast, we explore how to break into the charity sector. Returning to our How I Broke Into series, we'll be speaking to a group of new recruits to hear all about the trends and requirements and indeed internships needed to get a paid job in the not-for-profit sector. Plus, we'll be asking a junior staffer at Amnesty International what's it like working for a huge NGO. And dear Julian returns with some advice for a job seeker caught in the no experience, no job, no job, no experience conundrum. But first, let's run through the careers headlines. Hello to Guardian Professionals Head of Community Engagement, Harriet Minter, and Eliza Anyangwe, who's our Community Coordinator for the Guardian's Higher Education Network. Hello. Hello. Hiya. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, Eliza, I think you've got going to kick us off this week with a story about graduate expectations. I am, and the story I have is based on a report um, called Great Expectations Managing Generation Y. And it surveyed 1,200 graduates and nearly 700 managers and found that there was a disconnect between what managers think they should be offering to first-time employees, um, newly qualified graduates, and what graduates expect. It revealed that graduates are fiercely ambitious and wanted jobs that were quite competitively paid. They expected very different things to what their managers were offering in terms of promotion. And the relationship with their managers was supposed to be a lot more cordial than it actually than managers actually expect. So 56% of graduates expect their manager to be a coach or a mentor. Um, 21% expect them to be a friend. And while most bosses feel they're providing this role, graduates seem to disagree. And I'm not sure if anyone has any advice as to how you manage that conflict of expectations. So I kind of think one of the things that I think is quite interesting in that survey is that graduates think um, their manager is going to be a coach or a mentee. And the simple fact is that most managers probably don't have time to do that. And there are kind of two ways around that. One is to try and go and find somebody else within your organisation who's happy to take that on on a more formal basis and is happy to be a sort of mentor for you. And the other one is to actually sit down and think, it's very easy to think I could do your job better when it comes to your boss. And I'm sure that at some point everyone has thought that about their boss. I'm sure I think it. Please don't find me, boss. And um, so, but actually, you've got to realise that you're there to learn from them. They've been doing it for years. They've got a host of experience. If they're not doing something the way you would do it, there's probably a reason for that. And I think there's probably quite a lot to be said for making sure that as much as you're trying to improve yourself and develop yourself, you're also seeing what else other people are doing and how they're doing it and making sure you learn from them. That's brilliant advice. Thanks. Um, okay, my story is about is based on a blog we had on the careers site from James Callender, and he's the managing director of a recruitment consultancy called Fresh Minds Talent. And he was outlining some of the trends and faux pas that he'd noticed coming through from the graduates that you know the recent cohort of graduates that kind of job seeking. And there's some interesting stuff that you can kind of learn from here. And I think the expectation story might come in. So. He says one of the things that they've noticed is more and more candidates are sending hard copies of their CVs on really fancy, expensive-headed paper. He's seen um, some fancy envelopes and very glittery stationery, apparently. (laughs) So, you know, creative applications. Also, lots of people have been actually coming into the office themselves and delivering their CV by hand, um, 
to make themselves sort of more memorable and put a, uh, a face to the name. Um, he's also witnessed a number of parents calling on the behalf of graduates, inquiring about um, um, vacancies and about what they need to do. Um, I don't know if that's something Julian talks about a lot, that graduates tend to um, not use the phone as much as they perhaps should, so maybe this is a, a warning. Pick up the phone yourself. Um, but the faux pas of this story were my favourite, and I love a bit of uh, careers gossip, so... Um, he's, he's seeing a lot of fibs at the moment. He said um, they had one candidate who completely invented the last company that they claim they work for, <laughs> right, now, right down to the address and the name of, empl- of the employer. Um, and they Googled this company and they, <laughs> you know, it was an unfamiliar name. Recruitment consultants know the market, they know the employers. Um, so if you're coming up with, you know, not a made up company limited, um, and they Google you, <laughs> you got found out. Um, and he says, this is the evidence we needed not to provide her with an interview and I'm like oh so creative what are you talking about um they've also had candidates ringing people with their um at their targeted organization trying to get information posing as somebody that they're not so you know pretending to be a client or a freelance journalist to dig up some dirt on their selection and, and interview processes um but somebody perhaps needs wow. to go into journalism rather than working <laughs> for a management consultancy or something I think there um and also some of the social media faux pas that are coming through and we're telling everybody all the time to use it and sort of check out who you're going to be interviewed by but you know the information that you find out about a person you know you don't have to reveal that you know everything about them so there was another candidate who found his interviewer on a Facebook page and saw that they were <laughs> that they were their hobbies included cheerleading and baking <laughs> so you know they they go along to their interview and when they ask them a bit about themselves personally you were like oh yeah I'm really into cheerleading and baking <laughs> at this point the interviewer gets very freaked out and thinking what what is this a coincidence or am I being stalked here and 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 it it might be it's funny to us but actually it was very obvious to the interviewer and they were a bit freaked out um, and there was another one some you know you got on twitter you can kind of you might say I'm here or you can check in there was another candidate who actually went to the place where the person that they were trying to impress was so again maybe avoid oh stalking my. in the job seeking stakes <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an excellent voice. Stalking is not job seeking. Um, <laughs> job seeking. <laughs> so, my story this week obviously, we probably couldn't let this week go past without something on the news of the world and the phone hacking scandal. So, we have shoehorned it into the career sector. <laughs> and um, that's actually on the fact that the news of the world have all, as you know, the news of the world's closed and all the staff who work there are now out of a job. So we've got lots of people out there job seeking and there's been a bit in the press about how they might potentially sue for stigma damage. So that's the idea that their career has been damaged for work- by working for an organisation which has been involved in all this scandal. So um, I actually did a bit of research into this because given our financial situation at the moment, it's quite possible that at some point you're going to work for a company which does actually go bust or which ends up in the press. And it's how do you deal with that and how do you deal with perhaps the the stigma it leaves on your resume. And I found some quite good experience from um, the Wall Street Journal, wrote an article actually a few years ago, but some relevant points in it, which is one, if you're a job seeker coming out of a company that's been in trouble, you've got to be more proactive than the other job seekers. So you can't apply for jobs. You've got to find companies that you want to work for and get in touch with them and get start a conversation. 
And first thing he said is be upfront about it. Don't try and dismiss the issue. Don't try and pretend it didn't happen. You know, talk about your experiences of working in a company where perhaps you've had to deal with bad media coverage or you've had to deal with uncertain finances. How has that affected you and how has it made you a better employee? What have you learned from it? Hopefully not to hack people's phones and things like that. Um, and presumably you, you need to have something prepared to... Because you're going to get asked questions about it, Absolutely. aren't you? Absolutely. Particularly if you've been in the press, there's no way that it's not going to come up in a job interview. You've got to make sure that you disassociate yourself from it, but without pretending that it didn't happen. So I think you know, all experiences, good or bad, we learn something from. So talk about what you've learned from it and what you would do differently. And maybe what you've learned about the sort of company you now want to work for. And that's the other thing they say, is make sure you kind of give a bit of flattery to the new company. You say, say how much better you think it's going to be working for them than it was working for your old employer. Nobody wants to be seen to be dissing their old employer. But make sure that you've fully researched exactly what it is you love about this new company and how different it's going to be from your old company and that you can articulate that. Interesting. Thanks very much. So, dear Julian is back in the hot seat with some thoughts on the old conundrum of not being able to get a job because you've got no experience and not being able to get any experience because you haven't got a job. It's very nice to be back after a few weeks break. Um, A problem that we're talking about today is from someone called Risley who's stuck in a vicious circle where they've got no experience, they can't get a job and they can't get a job because they haven't got any experience. And my advice really in order to get your foot through the door as far as experience is concerned is to just try and think differently about how you're approaching your applications or indeed your when you're applying for work experience because clearly what you've been doing so far isn't working. So I'd take a step back, have a look at the letter, the CV that you're sending out to people and ask yourself, is it really standing out? Is it really selling my skills, my assets, if you like? Because employers nowadays are overwhelmed by applications for jobs. They're overwhelmed by applications for work experience from people that can't get jobs. And so what you find is that there's an avalanche of CVs and covering letters. And in order for your letter to be kind of read and digested and acted upon, I suppose, it's now more important than ever to make it stand out and to do something that no one else would have thought about doing and to make sure that 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 first line of your letter really crisply sells the uniqueness of who you are and what you've got to offer. So I can't tell you how many times I have to read the line, I'm applying for work experience in your company. It's just you just kind of your eyes glaze over even as soon as you start reading a letter written in that way because it's exactly what everyone else does and you know we're talking about a, a huge amount I mean I would say each of the magazines in the publishing company I work for will probably receive around 20 letters a day from graduates just looking for work experience so I would say the best thing that you can do in order to break this cycle Risley is to is to just take a step back and look at at Look at your strategy, I suppose. And remember, sometimes picking up the phone is the best thing to do when you really want to get a foot through the door. Because still, especially this younger generation of people, too scared to pick up the telephone and you'll be amazed how few people do it. And that would be a key piece of advice from me to anyone 
trying to get a job, get a foot in the door these days is to pick up the telephone because there's nothing more powerful than that personal connection. That was Julian Lindley, Creative Director at Bauer. So to our main discussion, whether it's been via graduate training scheme, an internship or just storming a charity's office brandishing a CV and a dissertation, our next guests have all recently taken their first steps into a career helping others. We're joined by a graduate panel. We've got Anna Martindale, who's fundraising and communications intern at the Clef Lip and Palette Association. Rhiannon Bates, Assistant PR Officer at Conservation Charity The Woodland Trust. And Robbie Cowbury, who's a graduate trainee at the Stroke Association. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming into the studio. Um, Just to start off, I want you all to give us a flavour of what your jobs are like and and what it's like working for your charity. So, Robbie, why don't you start? Uh, So, I am a graduate trainee, and it's basically project management. Uh, So, we do six-month projects um, in particular directorates, so currently... I'm working in operations uh, on demographics and stroke statistics and how we might be able to use that to help us and prevent strokes. Um, Previously, I was working in volunteering uh, in one of our regional offices. Um, So it's got a lot of autonomy um, and a lot of associated training as well that goes with it to help us get the skills we need to do the job. Sounds good. And what about you, Anna? Uh, Well, I work for a tiny, tiny charity, the Cleflip and Palette Association. There's six and a half employees and um six and, a half. Yeah, six and a half and I'm one of them and I'm a fundraising communications intern and basically I get to do a little bit of everything so I look after a lot of fundraisers I do trusts I do um articles I do loads and loads of different things and because there's so few people not it's not very specialized and so if there's a job that comes up they think I might be interested in they're very happy to let me get on with it so I do get to have like a huge range of experiences and what about you Rhiannon tell us a bit about your role Mine, well, mine isn't a graduate or an internship. It's an actual role within the company that's now permanent. Um, so I graduated last year and then just went for the job of PR assistant um, at the Woodland Trust, which is a conservation charity we create and protect woodland. Um, and I do all sorts of things. It's so varied. I do media analysis, so I check all our press cuttings every day and see which projects are getting coverage. Um, write press releases for regional nationals and radio and TV and um, my main enjoyment is doing our celebrities I look after them so I get to (laughs) engage them with our um, our projects yeah it's really exciting. So what attracted you all to working in the charity sector is it something that you kind of set out to do what about you Anna? Um, Well I got quite heavily involved in student fundraising when I was at university and I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I went to university and ever since I heard that being a fundraiser was a job I knew I wanted to do it and I'm just really happy that I'm enjoying it so much now because I wouldn't know what else I wanted to do. What about you, Robbie? Um, Well, I studied politics um, and it was pretty clear from doing that that if you went into politics, it would be very hard to actually have an impact on people's lives. You spend a lot more time sucking up to constituents and so on. So the charity sector offered a chance to kind of be on the front line and actually have an impact on people's lives and hopefully make them better. And I think having gone into it, that's been proved right. And what about you, Rhiannon? What attracted you to... Well, like Anna, I um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I went to uni, so I um, did events management, which was a bit of everything, marketing, logistics, events production, um, and then I did an elective in PR, which I absolutely loved, 
through that, I started looking at where I could go next um, and realised I didn't want to end up working in like financial or IT. It just wouldn't be for me. I needed something worthwhile that would get me out of bed in the morning, keep me engaged, and um, I just thought charity is the way to go. Did you do some volunteering as well? I mean, that's kind of what... I didn't. I've been very lucky, yeah. I, um, it was something I looked into, and when I went for my interview, um, they did say to me, actually, at the Woodland Trust, if you don't get the job, volunteer, because... Um, they take on volunteers so often, like two people in our team, the PR team, have both come from volunteering and they've both been offered paid jobs from it. So it is, it is something so worthwhile, but no, I didn't, I didn't actually do anything. I'm really surprised to hear that, actually, because even for jobs outside of the charity sector, you hear that sort of doing voluntary work is beneficial for your CV. I definitely, well, I'd assume that you, you were rare, like you say. I mean, what do you guys think? That's, you, you'd pretty much need to do that to make... To learn about the sector and to show a commitment to I think definitely. Um, I think if you're working for the PR side, it's a bit different because you can't come into that from different routes, obviously, because you need different kind of experiences. But I think if you want to go into the fundraising side of things, I mean, I, that's the only kind of role that I know about, but if you want to go into the fundraising side of things, you definitely need some kind of background. You need to know about the industry and about fundraisers and laws and all this sort of stuff. I don't think I could have like dreamed of getting a job like the one I've got without it. Tell me about what you did when you were volunteering, you know, the, and what kind of helped you prepare for a role in in the sector. I mean, what sort of tasks you were doing, what you were learning, and perhaps what you need to do when you're volunteering to ensure that you can take that step into a paid role if you want one. Um, at university, I got involved with the Raising and Giving Society. Like almost every big university has one, and ours was quite big as well. And you know, I was very heavily involved in both the fun sides and the not very fun sides of it, and I got to meet a lot, a lot of fundraisers. I had a huge range of experiences on you know, collections and events, organisations, and all those other kind of things, and so that was really useful when looking for a job. But after university, immediately after graduating, I got a voluntary position at the head office of Marie Curie Cancer Care. I did that for four months. And what I found, actually, after that was that people, weren't, people who were interviewing me weren't so much interested in what I'd been doing as the fact that I'd done it. They kind of just wanted to know that I'd volunteered in a big charity for four months and like I did learn things here and there but it wasn't really things that I think I've applied so much in in my current role I didn't think it was as important I didn't think the things that I was doing were as important as the fact that I just done it which I thought was a bit strange so it's more of a rite of passage than I, I felt I felt that way yes oh, I that's did interesting. Yeah. Um, well I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought up a bit about what you've done because when when we were talking before you came on the show you said you know I'd had long and grueling job hunt it certainly felt like that but I think it feels like that for a lot of graduates yeah I, I agree but it's, tell me about what you know what the process was for you getting your job like the sort of the key steps well I was I was quite naive and I was a little bit stupid when I first started out because I kind of assumed that because I had such a huge huge amount of experience like it was basically a part-time job for me at uni doing this volunteer work I had such a huge amount of experience I assumed that I'd be able to go to a charity and say look I'm really really genuinely interested I hate this word but I'm really passionate you know all these things that you're supposed to say in job interviews but I assumed I'd be able to say that and they'd just be like oh fantastic I'm aboard you know even if it was as an internship like I'm doing now but it really wasn't the case and I just found it so surprising. I know it's silly. I think everyone finds this. All the graduates find this when they leave university. I found it so surprising that for 10 months I managed to go only getting four interviews, I think. I sent off at least 10 applications a week. I got four interviews out of those. And by the end of it, I was so jaded with the whole industry because I thought like every time I got rejected, they'd say, well, why don't you do our six-month unpaid internship? And I'd be like, I don't know anyone who can do that. That's insane. But... Um, by the end of it, I was so dated with the industry that I thought I'm going to do one last round of applications and then that's it. And I was just incredibly lucky to get the position that, I, that I'm in now from those applications. Otherwise, I would have just kind of ignored this industry for a few years and gone on to just do random office work because even though I wasn't interested in that, I thought that will 
get me back into the industry that I really care about. What about you, Rhiannon? How did you get your job at the Woodland Trust? Okay, so I started out by just scouring the internet, as most graduates do when they finish. Um, just applied and applied and applied. Did some more research into what I thought I would want to go into, which is when I found the charity sector as the most appealing. Um, started targeting my searches using charityjob.co.uk, third sector by Haymarket and The Guardian, which is actually where my job came from, guardian.co.uk. Yeah. Um, so... I just I put my CV on loads of different recruitment websites. I also found that um, in order to stand out, you can't just apply online. I rang up recruit recruiters and spoke to them and made myself known. And um, when I applied to the Woodland Trust, the job was actually uh, the level above me. So I applied anyway, and then... It was feasible for me to go in and sit in their office because it was fairly near to where I lived, so I did. So I went and took my CV and my dissertation. Uninvited? Uninvited, <laughs> just popped in. Um, and they were lovely, just let me sit and wait for our head of PR who was in a meeting. So I waited for about an hour. And he was really, really good. He came and um, met me afterwards and read my CV, had a look through my dissertation and um, said basically what I'd been thinking. You know, I didn't have the qualifications or the experience to go for the actual PR officer role, but they were going to open up an assistant role, which wasn't going to be advertised. So they invited me to interview for that, and that's how that's how I ended up going. So, yeah, I'd always, always recommend people, if you can, go in. Don't just be a faceless application on the internet because they get hundreds, so it makes you stand out if you go in. Um, and what about you, Robbie? You've come through the graduate scheme route, but tell us a bit about the process before you got your job. I graduated a year before I started on the scheme at Stroke Association. And for the first six months, I was more or less unemployed, volunteering and working in a milkshake shop, which wasn't what I expected to be doing after I got my degree. Um, but from, from my volunteering, I got a one-day-a-week job at the local volunteer centre, which then was enough experience to get me a full-time role in a really small charity in their, in their office. Um, and that itself got me onto this graduate scheme, um, and I think was the experience that was able to um, help me stand out from everyone else applying. When you leave university, you think you can, you know, you can go out and you can get that great job. You've got your degree, you're ready to go, um, and actually, your expectations are probably a lot higher than what's available. Um, and so maybe you do have to lower your sights a little bit and start out with something on the ladder to move on up. Bearing in mind how tough the competition is, what do you think it was that helped you get your job, you know, sort of be ahead of the competition? What do you reckon, Rianne, sort of storming the offices and demanding to see the head of PR? <laughs> I think that, I th- honestly think I would not have got an interview without that. I think um, having confidence and being a bit fearless is qualities that you... you can't um can't not have when you're a graduate because there is just so many graduates now so many people have got degrees it's just the norm at the moment so you know there's there isn't enough jobs that are um you know what you what you're looking for when you come out of uni to satisfy everyone it's about being able to show that you are proactive and that you're going after these jobs and that's what calling up is and if you can show that through other things you're doing such as volunteering as well um, and that's what it is you can show that you're not just applying for a job that you really want to do it and you're pushing to do it regardless of whether you've actually been paid or not and what about you Anna what was no, I absolutely agree thing? with both of you I mean I kind of wish that I'd had that proactivity when I first started out to kind of really put myself out there but again like I said I didn't think it'd be that hard and I think when I finally actually started getting interviews and started getting callbacks and everything it was when I started you know, I, I stopped having like the really bog standard CV and I started putting loads of ridiculous hyperbole into it about how much I really loved what I was doing. And I think, you know, in, in, the, in the charity sector and especially fundraising, it's a very nice, cuddly industry. So you can be a bit more, you can, you can be a bit less formal, I think. And my cover letter was kind of ridiculous for some of the jobs that I sent out. But again, it did help, did help me stand out. And sometimes, you know, I would go to the interview and, you know, it wouldn't be what I was looking for. I wasn't what they were looking for. And that was fine. But 
when I eventually did get the internship at Clapper, they said it was because they really liked my energy and they really liked the fact that, you know, I didn't lie on my CV, that I really did actually love what I was doing and that I'd be really great at it. And you know, thankfully, it turns out they actually am. Otherwise, I don't know what I'd do. Um, I don't know if I'm just being a jobs nerd, but I really want to see that covering letter now. <laughs> what exactly you were saying. But I think that's interesting because you kind of just give us some insight into what the charity sector wants, whether it is you're sort of saying that fundraising is a bit cuddly. I mean, what are the sort of trends or kind of nuances to charity sector do you think applicants need to know about and you being on the inside know about now? I think one of the key things um, for, for Stroke, at least, is to understand their values and what it is they're trying to do. Um, charities aren't just trying to make money. Charities are there to do a charitable purpose. Um, and you, if you're applying for one, you really have to understand what that is and how they go about it and what the values are that inform um, how they're going to achieve those goals. You don't just go for things that you, that you think you'd be really personally interested in, because I think especially in the third sector, they're all really worthwhile causes. And I think no matter what you do, you'll be able to go into it and you'll be able to see how valuable it is. Yeah, it's really interesting because I would presume that you needed some kind of specialist knowledge for your organisation. It does help. I mean, they did say um, that they, you know, they, they, they would have preferred to recruit someone with a cleft level palate or whatever, but it just didn't happen. And you know, they do prefer to, pe- to recruit people who have, who have a personal interest, but that's just because you, know, you, you get an extra level of dedication, I guess. That's interesting. And what about you, Rhiannon? I mean, what, what kind of insights can you offer? Um, right, well, I think research, definitely. I think that's, that's a key thing. Um, like with the Woodland Trust, you know that we're the leading um, woodland creation charity in the UK at the moment. Um, I wasn't completely aware of that when I started um, looking for jobs, you know. And then it, it popped up, and I did some research, and I thought, you know, this is so worthwhile. You know, the amount of carbon that we give out at the moment as a country, planting trees, you know, removes that from the atmosphere. It's it's a pretty incredible thing to be doing. It's, it's almost a little bit like saving the world. Okay. Oh. <laughs> what, a, what a good note to end on. Well, thanks everybody, um, and I hope that your careers prosper from now on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Rhiannon, Anna and Robbie. Now, in the most recent Guardian 300, and that's a table of the UK's most popular graduate employers as voted for by students and graduates, it was Amnesty International that topped the charity and not-for-profit category. So to find out what it's like to work for one of the UK's most desirable organisations and to get some tips to anybody who's got their sights on a role at a big charity, we've got Amy Summers on the phone. Hello, Amy. Hello. Thanks for um, speaking to us today. That's my pleasure. Um, the first thing I've got to ask you about is your this impressive job title alert. This is Amy's job title. It's Middle East and North Africa Crisis Response Campaign Assistant. Your email sign-off must be em- epic. <laughs> no, it's quite long isn't it? What does that mean? What do you do? Um, so basically I work in the, uh, the campaign team within Amnesty International UK and I work in the area of work on basically country priorities and crisis response. Okay. So obviously at the moment or since February uh, we've been seeing all these amazing uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa um, and obviously Amnesty has had to ramp up its work in this area, um, hence why my job then became available. Um, so I'm working on our crisis response, um, specifically in the Middle East and North Africa region. Now that's interesting. So can vacancies be affected by things that are going on in the areas where Amnesty is working then? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, with our crisis response work, it can be ramped up or ramped down depending on what's going on. Obviously, at the moment, we're in quite a long-term crisis response mode with everything that's been happening in the Middle East and North Africa. Now, I mentioned that Amnesty was voted the most popular charity employer. I mean, 
What do you think it takes to get a job there? It must be pretty competitive. Um, I think so, yeah. I mean, most people in the building will obviously have been to university. A lot of people have their postgraduate degrees um, and masters and things like that. Um, Everybody is wildly experienced. Um, I mean, even kind of entry-level roles at the moment candidates you're seeing you know they've they've got postgraduate um, study degrees they've got plenty of internships and volunteering under their belt they've got kind of other things on their cv so it is it is really really competitive um so it kind of takes a lot to a lot to impress really um just before you go can you share um a top tip anybody who wants to work at a big charity what would you kind of advise them to do I would definitely say whilst they're at university, kind of build up your skills and experience. So perhaps join a local um, amnesty group or a student group. We've got a massive kind of network of students across the UK. The other thing I probably would say is that whilst you're at university, perhaps instead of getting a usual kind of bar or waitressing job as your part-time bit of extra money, um, try and head for something that's a bit more office-based. I know that when I was sort of starting out looking for jobs, one of the big things was that I didn't have enough admin experience. Um, and, you know, that could have been solved by having a, a temporary job when I was down at uni. So they would be my two, two big tips, I think. Yeah, they're great. Um, thanks so much, Amy. It was great speaking to you. It's my pleasure. It was nice to speak to you too. Now, sticking with the theme, we've got a collection of charity vacancies lined up for this week's Jobs Top 10. Harriet and Eliza are here to reveal the chart. Straight in at 10, it's a Trust and Foundations fundraising officer via prospectus recruitment. And at 9, it's a Living Landscapes coordinator at Essex Wildlife Trust. While at 8, the RSPB is searching for a learning manager. We've got a volunteering and work experience coordinator role from First Wessex Housing Group at 7. The NSPCC wants a senior practitioner at 6. And at 5, Comic Relief is looking for a senior account manager. The Abbeyfield Kent Society wants an area business manager at 4. Coming in at 3, Charitas is searching for a legacy manager. One from the top at 2, Hand in Hand International is looking for a major donor fundraiser. And this week's numero uno is a face-to-face on-street recruitment coordinator with Amnesty. International Ireland. And finally, here's what we've got coming up on the careers site next week. Wednesday, 20th July, working in brand design. Thursday, 21st, breaking into charity PR and communications. And on Friday, 22nd, a guide to assessment centres. That brings us to the end of the pod. Thanks to our graduate panel, Anna Martindale, Rhiannon Bates and Robbie Cowbury. Also to Amnesty's Amy Summers, Julian Lindley and of course Eliza Anyangwe and Harriet Minter. Careers Talk was produced by James Crawford. I'm Kerry Eustace. Goodbye. Goodbye.